Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read from verses 12 through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 till the end of the chapter. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now the year is the early 5th century, somewhere around 412, 413 A.D. And at a, as church history would tell us, in a cathedral in northern Africa, two men were ministering, two bishops in the church in that day were ministering. One, Augustine, the other, Pelagius. And according to church history, Augustine prayed that day in the cathedral, a prayer recorded in his confessions, and what he said was this, my whole hope is only in thy exceeding great mercy. Give what you commandest, commandest what you wilt. That sentence, that phrase offended Pelagius. What Augustine was saying is, Lord, give me the grace to do what you command of me and command of me what you will. And and Pelagius took offense at this. That, That offended him. And in fact, one of the earliest church synods gathered to deal with this issue. And what may not seem initially, well, what's what's the offense there? Let me explain to you where, where Pelagius was coming from. As he understood the justice of God, when when Augustine prays, Lord, give me the grace to do what you command and command me to do what you will, Pelagius cries foul. He says, it would be unjust of God to command us to do things he did not give us the ability to do. 
It would be unjust. I want you to see that. It would be wrong. It would be intrinsically unjust, unfair, unrighteous if God would ever command us to do things we were unable to do. How could a just God punish his creatures for doing that which they were unable to obey? I want you to feel the weight of that. That was Pelagius' complaint. The problem is, as the discussion was taken up, Augustine pushed back and he said, well, God commands us to be holy and sinless and without blemish before him. Surely you don't think man can do that. And after some thought, Pelagius decides, yep, man has to be able to do that. And Augustine goes to Paul in in Psalm 51. And children are conceived sinners. We're coming to this world sinners. We can't be sinless. And Pelagius, thinking through this, denies this as well. The question that's that's at dispute here is what is the consequence of Adam's first sin? Last week, we looked at Adam's first sin in Genesis 3. What effects does that have on humanity? Or, as the question in the bulletin states it, in what moral state is natural man born into the world? And I want you to get why this is a big issue. This may seem like a small issue of theology, something which eggheads like myself or Pastor Daniel might dispute in armchairs, but I want you to see that our understanding of who we are and who our neighbor is and really our understanding of the gospel is at stake in these questions. Is it unjust of God to demand of us what we are unable to do? How is man born into the world? Now, historically, they've been three answers. And and I've just put good, mixed, and evil. Now, next to them, I've given the historical names to them, which if you're interested in such things, you can keep track of. If not, you can promptly forget them. They're unimportant. Church history is a rich field to learn from, but church history is not authoritative. Just because the entire church gets together and agrees on something, I think it's worth noting, it's worth paying attention to, but God's word alone captivates our conscience. And as a friend of mine said to me yesterday, chapter and verse, amen and amen. However, here are the views. First, there's Pelagianism. Man is born good. He is born sinless, just as Adam and Eve. And he is able to perfectly obey God without grace. That's Pelagianism. But I want you to get why Pelagius thought this was a necessary truth. If God is going to punish us for being sinners with eternal condemnation, then surely we have to come into this world good. If we came in as as anything other than righteous, that punishment would be unjust. God would be punishing people for what they could not help being and doing. And so he is trying to defend, in his view, the righteousness of God from attack, from slander. And so he argued that man was born sinless and he was able to perfectly obey God. That was the only way, in his view, God could punish us for not perfectly obeying him. I want you to get why that resonated with him. Okay? Now, that view was condemned by the church at the Council of Carthage in 418. Pelagianism was condemned. Um, we'll look at the biblical evidence in a minute, but it was, it was manifestly shown. You, no, the Bible does not teach any such thing. So then, over the current decades and centuries, a new version came out called semi-Pelagianism, and I do believe semi-Pelagianism, um, although most people unconscious of it, is the dominant view in the Western church. 
And this is the view that we are born with good and bad. We're born mixed. There's a good dog. There's a bad dog. There's a measure of evil. There's a measure of goodness in every one of us born into the world. Does that sound familiar? That's semi-Pelagianism. And this view says that man is born with both good and bad inclinations. We are born with both the ability for good, the ability for bad. We are born with a bent towards sin. We're going to sin. And yet, we are not born into this world in such a state that we can't do good. And then finally, there is the Augustinian view, which I think is the biblical view. And in just a moment, we will move past all this church history to the text, which is that man is born sinful and unable to perfectly obey God. Another way of thinking of these views of how we're born into this world is, are we born spiritually alive? That would be the Pelagianism, the good view. Are we born spiritually sick and dying? There's still some life in us, but we're sick, and we will die without help. Or are we born dead in our trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 says? Well, I do believe Augustine got the right of this. I do believe the Council of Carthage was correct in its condemnation of Pelagianism. But what I believe and what they believe is immaterial. What matters is what God has said. Chapter and verse. And so, let's go to Romans 5, where the Apostle Paul, I think more clearly than any other place in Scripture, deals with this issue of what is called original sin. The consequence of Adam's sin in the garden. Now, the Bible teaches the effects of original sin in many, many places, but this is one of the few places where the issue itself is looked at and argued. And the Apostle Paul will use strong reasoning from Romans 5, 12 to 21 to argue that Adam's original sin condemned us all. Okay? So, the key for the first part of the argument is in verses 12 through 14. In fact, you can really view, as we read this, verses 13 and 14 as an aside. The text almost flows more smoothly without it. Paul writes in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then what follows is a justification of that statement. Namely, that through the one man's action, all sinned. Paul expects this to be something we go, what? Huh? What do, you, what do you mean we all sinned in Adam? Death spread to all men because all sinned. And then his argument follows in verse 13 and 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. And, and in the next few minutes, we're going to unpack that argument. Paul's reasoning is tight. It's lucid. It's rational. But just to show you that I do think I have understood him rightly in verse 12, all sins, look a little later to verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now that's pretty clear. Go back then to verse 12. All sinned. What Paul is saying I'll try to explain how this works, is that in Adam's eating of the fruit in the garden, in that original transgression, you and I and every other human being who has ever existed other than the Lord Jesus Christ, sinned in God's legal view. We became guilty. This is what is known as original sin. So let's look at Paul's argument and start working through it, okay? 
Now the first, that Paul's going to reason by bringing out what's syllogistic reasoning. He's going to make a premise, premise A, and if premise A is true, then the next premise works together and, and it builds somewhere. So the first plank in his argument is found in verse 12, and the blanks here are this, only sinners can die. Only sinners can die. Death only spreads through sin. Death spreads through sin. This was one of the reasons why we rejected notions of the origin of the earth that has death rampant before the fall. There there can't be death before the fall. Or the biblical narrative gets undone. Death is a judgment, a consequence of sin. And when people die, they prove they are sinners. Jesus was only able to die because he took sin upon himself on the cross. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Only sinners can die. That's that's the first point of Paul's argument. Death is a consequence, a judgment of sin, which is why one of our gospel hopes in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the Lord Jesus, when he returns, death will be undone because sin will be fully undone and no more. There will be no more death because there will be no more sin. Verse 12, death through sin, so just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death is only spreading because sin is spreading. Death is the effect, the consequence, the judgment on sin. Only sinners die. You see someone and they die, we know they were a sinner. You with me so far? Okay. The Apostle Paul in verse 13 then makes the next point. Sin is not counted your blank. Sin is not counted where there is no law. Verse 13, for indeed sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. What Paul is saying is this, there are all manner of sins in the world, but until we break law, until we become a lawbreaker, the book's of sin don't open up to us. They cannot be reckoned to our account. You and I cannot be guilty of sin. We cannot be charged with sin until we become lawbreakers. It's it's much in the sense that somebody cannot be guilty of violating Iowa statutes until they enter into the state of Iowa, right? Now you could be, in a sense, breaking all sorts of Iowa statutes in Missouri, but the law would have no claim. No charge could be brought against you while you were doing your deeds in Missouri. At least Iowa would have no jurisdiction. So there's, there's laws in Iowa that you could be in a sense breaking, but until you enter into the state and the jurisdiction of Iowa, the Iowa law has nothing to say to you. What Paul's saying here is this, until one breaks God's law, divine law, sins aren't counted. They're not charged. The point is this, only lawbreakers can be guilty of sin. That's what Paul is saying. So the logic is this. You first have to be a lawbreaker, then you can become a sinner. You can have sins reckoned to you, and one of the judgment of having sins reckoned to you is death. So if you die, you're a sinner, and if you're a sinner, you're a lawbreaker. That's Paul's reasoning. You with me so far? That's the order of effect. First comes the breaking of law, then sin can be counted, charged to you. You can be prosecuted, if you will, by God's court, and then the judgment of death comes. That's the order that Paul is assuming here tightly because the hinge of his argument is, comes in the next verse, in verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
At this point, Paul assumes he has made his case. So let me try to explain how this case works. He picks two men, Adam and Moses. Now, why do you think he picks Adam and Moses? Because Adam is the first place where God gave a divine decree and command, you shall not eat. The first giving of divine law, if you will, is the law, do not eat, that God gave to Adam. When is the next time in human history God shows up and gives commands? Sinai with Moses, right? So, here's Paul's reasoning. We look at the time period between the first time God spoke giving a law and a command in in Eden. And then we look at the next time God shows up and gives a, a rule. And the men died in between the two. And so let's take the reasoning Paul has just given us. If they died, if the men who lived between Adam and Moses died, they must be, what? Sinners. And if they're sinners, they must therefore be lawbreakers. Because sin's not imputed where there is no law, and death spreads through sin. They died. We therefore know they're sinners. And if they're sinners, they're lawbreakers. And what Paul is asking the question is, what possible law did they break? Couldn't be Moses. Couldn't be the Ten Commandments. They didn't exist yet. Paul's argument is somehow we must be guilty in Adam because otherwise we couldn't have sin reckoned to our account unless we were lawbreakers. Sin is not counted where there is no law. And there was no law again until hundreds, possibly thousands of years later at Sinai. And yet all those men died which is what he makes then in verse 12 and 19. Therefore, the next blank, those men who died between Moses and Adam must be truly guilty of Adam's sin. Therefore, they must be truly guilty of Adam's sin. Now, so far, Paul has not tried to explain how this works. He's only tried to argue that this is the case. The rest of the chapter five, he'll try to explain, well, how is that right? How is that just? How is that good? But I just want you to see so far, tightly, in verses 12 to 14, Paul has argued that in Adam we sinned. That through his action, according to verse 19, we were made to be sinners. That at the effect of Adam's sin was that each and every one of us becomes a lawbreaker and a sinner in the sight of God and in reality. Now, as we read on the rest of this chapter, we try to understand how on earth does it work, what we learn is, and here's our next bullet point, Adam's sin is imputed. It's a big word. We'll unpack that. Is imputed to us just as Christ's righteousness is. Imputed is just is an accounting term. It's a reckoning term. I want you to think about this. You are not actually sinless, are you? Anyone here want to make that claim? will condemn you as a Pelagian. Um, No, no one here is actually sinless, but for those of us who have put our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, how does God and his legal court view us? It's righteous, it's sinless, it's just. How is that possible? It is because Christ's righteousness is credited, is imputed to us, right? Right? The actions of another define us. The actions of another person, his righteous actions are credited to us. They affect us. They define us. And God treats us as though we had lived Christ's life. You you get that? You understand the imputation is how we receive the righteousness of Christ. 
It is given to us. It is granted to us. It is credited to us. Well, as we read the rest of this chapter, we'll see Paul argues the exact same thing is how we receive guilt from Adam. You can't miss it. Look, pick it up in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Now, in the first few verses, he's going to contrast the two. The differences. The major difference being one brought death, one brought life. The first Adam basically killed everybody. And the, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, gives life. And then he's going to show the connection of how they're similar, starting in verse 16. But we'll pick it up in 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died... Through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For judgment, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And now he starts to focus on the similarities. Therefore, as or just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Do you get how he's saying? The same, it works the same way. The same way that you, you, one man does something. He lives a sinless life. He dies on a cross. That one man's actions affect all of his people. Just as so then. That's exactly how one man's act of sin affects humanity. Now at this point, you, you, you might still cry foul. I asked, I chose Jesus to represent me. I asked him to credit me with his life. I never asked Adam to do that. But what we find out, and here's the final point under B, is Adam and Christ both acts, act sorry, as the heads of their representative races. Both of them represent a people group. And so goes the man, so goes the people group. Jesus represents all of his people. Adam represents all of his people. Adam and Christ both, both act as the heads of the representative races. Their actions directly affect all those whom they represent. Now we understand this legally. We understand that if one of our dignitaries, if, one of, if our president, if one of our politicians signs a contract or makes a peace treaty with another nation, all American citizens are bound by that contract, bound by that treaty. One man's act can bind us to the consequences of their act. They represent us. This is called federal headship, legal headship. And again, we can say, yes, but we vote for our leaders. And we didn't vote for Adam. And here is where, honestly, we just have to trust the wisdom and the goodness of God. Apparently, God in his wisdom and goodness knew that Adam would be a sufficient and excellent representative for us. Even though we did not choose Adam, even though we did not vote for Adam, God, in his wisdom, decided that Adam would represent us. And I suggest to you that had you or I been in the garden, we would have eaten sooner and with greater rebellion, that Adam is a good representative for us. That God decided that as went the man, so would go the humanity. Keep in mind that the first sin was not Eve's. The first sin was Adam's. It was to Adam that God gave the command. It was Adam who was the head of the race. As Adam went, so went the humanity. This is why the Bible can say things like Psalm 51, 6. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Paul is arguing that, I mean, David is arguing that from conception, he was conceived as a zygote in the womb as a sinner. That's, that's what the scripture says. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 51, 5 and 6. Psalm 58, 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. Or Ephesians 2. Listen, listen to the record of Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, not sick, not dying, dead, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, get this, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." We came into this world and our nature was hostility with God. We didn't come in neutral. We didn't come in good. We came in by nature, children of wrath. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Which brings us then to our sort of summary point. Here's, here's what I believe the Bible teaches in all of this. That all humankind, all mankind, is guilty of Adam's first act of sin and rebellion in the garden. All men are conceived as sinners in the womb and stand guilty before God. I want to make one other point here. Some Christians and theologians discuss how it is that Adam, we receive our guilt from Adam. And there, there are two views held in orthodoxy. I only mention this because you may have heard the other. I've, one view that I've put forward, I think Paul teaches pretty clearly in Romans 5 with a comparison, is what's known as federal headship, that Adam legally represents his people. The other view would be seminal headship, that Adam is the genetic head of the race. And the only difference between these two views, they get us to the exact same place, is that in one, I received my sinfulness from my parents who got it from their parents who got it from their parents all the way back to Adam. In the other view, Adam represents us federally, legally, like a politician represents a people group, and so it's directly from Adam. Now, I do believe that that is the correct view, simply because of the comparison, just as so then in Romans 5, between Adam and Jesus. We receive our righteousness not from our parents who received it from their parents who received it from Jesus. We receive our righteousness from Christ directly, legally, federally, as our representative. Just as so then, just as so then. Okay, then my best understanding is just as I receive my righteousness from Christ, I receive my sin from Adam. That also gets rid of the question that sometimes troubles people. Well, then how did Jesus not inherit sinfulness? Well, if sinfulness is passed on genetically and Jesus had a human mother, then I, and I, people wrestle with this, then how did Jesus not inherit the sin nature? It's not a problem. If, if, if I'm right about what Paul is saying here in Romans 5, if, if Adam's the legal, federal head of humanity, then you simply say, Adam didn't represent Jesus, so his actions don't affect him. It's as simple as that. But good people disagree on that. I don't want to make an issue of division. All mankind is guilty of Adam's first act of sin and rebellion in the garden. All men are conceived as sinners in the womb and stand guilty before God. Which brings us then to a second issue. And a second 
um, tumultuous debate within the church. The issue of Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism was dealt with in the 5th century. We're going to jump ahead a thousand years now to the Protestant Reformation as we ask our second but closely related question. The second question is this. How bad is it? For born sinners, how bad? How, what effect does our sin that we're conceived and born into this world have upon us? What capacity for faith and obedience does natural man have? We're born into this world as sinners. How, how bad? How bad is it? And this was really the issue at stake in many respects in the Protestant Reformation. Um, Luther in 525, um, just, just eight years after the start of the Reformation, engaged in a heated debate back and forth with the Roman Catholic priest Erasmus of Rotterdam. Luther's, his most famous book that he wrote, the book he was proudest of writing, The Bondage of the Will, was written in response to Erasmus. And a lot of issues came up in the Reformation, but I want you to listen to how Luther in the conclusion of his, his writing to Erasmus, places the priority on this issue of the settling the issue of what is the state of the will of man. Listen to this. Moreover, and he's writing to Erasmus, I give you hearty praise and commendation on this further account that you alone, in contrast to all others, have attacked the real thing. That is the essential issue. You have not wearied me with those extraneous issues about the papacy or purgatory or indulgences and such like trifles. Luther just said the papacy, indulgences, and purgatory are trifling issues compared to settling this question. Rather than issues in respect of which almost all to date have sought my blood, though without success, you and you alone have seen the hinge on which all turns and aimed for the vital spot. You see, what we're dealing with here is two ways to answer this question. What is the capacity for faith and obedience this natural man have? There's two possible answers. One that man is still able to love God and exercise saving faith on his own, unaided. That's what we mean by natural man. When we say natural man, man left to his own devices, man apart from God's enabling grace. One view, man is able to love God and exercise saving faith. Now this is the view that became known about a little, almost 100 years later, is Arminianism. And again, you can throw these titles away. I'm just guessing most of you have heard terms like Arminian and Calvinism bandied about, give you some context of what's going on here. The other answer is this. Man is unable to love God and exercise saving faith on his own in his natural state. This is what's frequently known as Calvinism. And I want to make something clear. Calvin didn't come up with this. 20, 30 years before Calvin wrote, Luther was arguing this point with Erasmus. This view, the point two, that man is unable naturally to love God and exercise saving faith was the uniform theology of the Reformation. And, and I want you to see in a minute why it's crucial. It wasn't just that the reformers in their, in their protestation against the Roman Catholic Church just happened to pick issues of man's sinfulness and predestination and all the things they became famous for because they were topics they found particularly interesting. No, as you'll see, Luther understood answering these questions. The gospel hinged upon it. The entire Reformation stood or fell upon it. And against this issue, the papacy, indulgences, and purgatory, trifles. Trifles. And here's why. 
Let me just read to you a quote from The Bondage of the Will. Luther explaining why he understands this issue so significant. God, he writes, has surely promised his grace to the humbled. That is, to those who mourn over and despair of themselves. But a man cannot be thoroughly humbled till he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsels, efforts, will, and works, and depends absolutely on the will, counsel, pleasure, and work of another, God alone. As long as he is persuaded that he can make even the smallest contribution to his salvation, he remains self-confident and does not utterly despair of himself and so is not humbled before God, but plans out for himself, or at least hopes and longs to, a position, an occasion, a work, which shall bring him final salvation. What Luther's saying is this, either we contribute to our salvation or we don't. Either salvation and justification in the gospel is by grace alone or we bring that final peace to the table. And if man is able naturally in his own ability to love God, to turn to him, to repent of his sins, to believe, then what we understand is here's salvation. Jesus dies for everyone And that gets you most of the way to forgiveness. And the last piece of the puzzle, the last contribution that needs to be made to make salvation effective and work is my decision. This starts to sound familiar again too. This again, majority view, Arminianism. It's the majority view in the Western church. Jesus did all this for you and all you have to do is supply that last little piece, the last brick on the bridge, the last piece in the jigsaw puzzle, and boom, your sins are forgiven and it works. Here's the problem with that view. Now, most people who hold to that view haven't thought through the implications, but Luther and Erasmus did. Remember, Rome was challenging the notion that we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Rome was arguing good works were necessary for salvation. Luther was willing to die for justification by faith alone. He understood, look, and, 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 and Erasmus understood that if you and I are bringing that last little piece to the table, if we well up within our goodness, we, we grit our teeth and we produce faith, then we do have something to boast of. Then salvation is 99.999% Jesus and the last little bit is me. And heaven becomes filled with either the smart people, the people who are smart enough to figure this out, or the good people, the people who are more willing to, to confess their sin, more willing, you know, the, the sin had less of a hold over them and hell then is filled with the stupid bad people and heaven's filled with the smart good people and we have destroyed justification by grace alone and we have given man every reason to boast in his salvation. That's why Luther understood this issue. Are we completely dependent on God or do we bring something to the table? And, and Luther and I believe the Bible again teaches that man is unable in his natural state, to love God and exercise saving faith. And we are going to quickly try to look through why this is so. And follow along with me. We're going to turn to every one of these passages. I'm going to move somewhat quickly because of time, but you can follow along or you can check me up later. What we're dealing with here is the issue of total depravity. Have you ever heard the acrostic tulip? The T in tulip is for total depravity. I want you to understand what it means and what it doesn't mean. We talk about the total depravity of man. It is the belief that the Bible teaches that every aspect of us is tainted by sin. It is not 
utter depravity. It is not saying that we are as wicked and as evil as we could be, but rather that no area of uncontaminated righteousness remains. An analogy would be if I had a 10-gallon bucket here that I'd poured, filled with water and poured blue dye into, and I took a white, pure T-shirt and dunked it vigorously in the bucket, how much of that shirt when it comes out is still white? None. Now, we could dye the shirt darker and darker shades of blue. It's not as blue as it could possibly be. That would be utter depravity. There are people who are more wicked than other people. The point is this. Sin has totally spread through our being. There is no part of us that remains unstained, uncontaminated. There is no good in us. Nothing good, as Paul says, within me dwells. We are totally contaminated and depraved by sin. Let's argue this biblically. And that leaves us then, I believe, as Luther said, unable to, to unaided love God and exercise faith. First, Matthew 12, 33. Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And here's the point I want you to get from this. Our actions, there's the blank, our actions evidence our nature. It is not the other way around. We sin because we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We are first, we enter the world sinners, and then we act out our nature. I want you to get that from here. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. The tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? It is your nature to be evil, therefore you cannot bear good fruit. The nature determines the fruit, not the other way around. We can't staple apples on a thorn tree and turn it into an apple tree. Apple trees produce apples. There's no amount of moral reform. There's no amount of, of energy and good works that can turn a thistle tree into an apple tree. The fruit, our actions, evidence our nature. You see, when, when I say that, and when Luther says, when the Protestant reformers said that man is unable on his own to love God and exercise saving faith, there, there's a right way and a wrong way to think about that. No one... No Calvinist, no reformer believed that there were people who wanted to believe, who wanted Jesus, who wanted salvation. But there's this glass wall, nope, you can't, nope, God's not going to let you come. That is not what anyone believes. Rather, it is this notion that Jesus teaches here in Matthew 12 that we are constrained, we are bound, we must live out our nature. We cannot be other than what we are. Luther writes this, this will be my last Luther quote of the distinction between necessity and compulsion. Sinning out of necessity, not compulsion, but out of necessity. He writes, that is to say, a man without the spirit of God does not do evil against his will under pressure, as though he were taken by the scruff of the neck and dragged into it like a thief or a, or a footpad being dragged off against his will to the jail. But he does it spontaneously and voluntarily. And this willingness or volition is something which he cannot in his own strength eliminate, restrain, or alter. He goes on willing and desiring to do evil. And if external pressure forces him to act otherwise, nevertheless, his will within him remains averse to doing 
the good and chafes under such constraint and opposition. So what Luther is saying is we must never view that this doctrine is that men have their arms twisted behind their back and no, I want to be good and I, I want to do what's right. I'm being made to do evil. Rather, because our natures come in evil, the fruit we bear is evil. Our natures willingly, gladly, no one twisting our arm, no outside force constraining us. We all freely, gladly, under no compulsion, choose evil and choose evil and choose evil. This same point becomes clear in John chapter three. If you turn there, One of the most famous verses in the Bible about forgiveness, John 3.16. I want to start there and keep going. I want to start there and keep going. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Notice, he didn't send his Son of the world to judge the world. Rather, the world is judged. Here's the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Look at verse 20 again. Everyone who does wicked things. Now, how many people do wicked things? We already established that in our first half of the sermon, right? Everyone. Everyone comes into this world a sinner. So we just plug everyone in there. For everyone, since everyone does wicked things, verse 20, everyone hates the light and does not come to the light. You get that? And the reason they don't come is not some external force twisting their arm. Rather, it is their nature, because they love sin, to hate light and righteousness. I I used this illustration with the youth group a number of years ago. I had a big pickle jar. You know those big pickle jars you can get at Costco? And it was just about this time of the year. No, it was actually spring. And I went out in the backyard, and I gathered up all the rotten, moldy apples that were still on the ground, and I got a bunch of leaves and maybe half an earthworm or two, and I got some rainwater, and I filled the pickle jar with this nasty, nasty gunk of mud and leaves and, and apples that were left on the tree, the scroglins. And I, and I put that in the pickle jar, and I put the lid on, and then I got a big soup spoon, and then I went to the ATM and I got five crisp $20 bills. And I went to youth group. And everyone's sort of sitting there and uh, hanging to see the pickle. What's the pickle jar? I put the pickle jar in a stand in the middle of the circle. They're sitting in a circle. And what I did that next was I passed the big pickle jar with a spoon around counterclockwise and I passed the 520s around clockwise. And already some of the kids are getting excited. There's money. And I think Matthew Braun and, and Alyssa Robinson were all ready. I'll, I'll eat it for 100. I'll eat it for 100. You know, raising their hands. And when it finally came full circle, I said, you know, no, that's not my challenge. I, I know you'll eat it for 100. Um, <laughs> let's face it, Matthew would eat it for five. <laughs> um, but what I said is, here's what I want you to do. I want you to exercise your free will. I want you to change your affections and your desires and what you love and what you hate. And I want you to, I want you to exercise your free will in such a way that this jar of nastiness tastes delicious to you. I want you who are born loving darkness to love light. 
I want you who are born loving good food to love this. Enjoy this. Eat this and enjoy it. Eat this and have it taste good. Eat this and hunger for it, and I'll give you $100. You see, we're free to do what we want, but we are not free to want what we want. That make sense? We are free to do whatever we want. We're not puppets on strings. We're certainly not robots. We are, you can do whatever you want, whatever you desire, whatever you please, except desire and please and want whatever you want. Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't sanctification be simple if every one of us right now could decide, you know what? Let's stop caring what people think about us. Man, that's just stupid. Why fear man? Let's just fear God. Okay, everyone right now, inwardly, internally, flip the switch, stop caring what people think about you. Any, any success stories? It wouldn't be wonderful. You know what? This pride and this selfishness thing has got to go. I'm just going to stop loving myself as much as I do. I'm going to stop caring about myself as much as I do. I'm going to just start loving other people more. If only it were that simple. There is no amount of will and free will that can enable me to love what I don't love, to hate what I don't hate, to hunger for what I don't hunger for. What stops man from believing is not anything outside himself. It's man. It's man himself. It's his nature. Precisely because he's free to do what he wants, he will always choose to run from the light. You know, a wolf is free to eat straw. You can put straw in front of him, put it in a cage. It will starve to death because its nature is opposed to eating hay. That, that's where we talk about man's inability. It stems from himself. No puppets, no robots. John three sixteen to 21, sinners hate the light and do not come to it. This is what we love. This is what we hate. This is what we crave, what we long for. Truth is a moral category. We come into this world loving our sin and loving our own way and loving our autonomy and freedom. And we see God and his righteousness as a threat and we scurry like cockroaches when the light turns on. This is why Paul in Romans 8, 7 can make the following statement. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Cannot. The natural mind cannot submit itself to God's law. Yes, the natural mind can force itself to do what God's law says. The youth could force themselves to eat a spoonful of my gook. But what it cannot do is delight in it. What it cannot do is love it. What it cannot do is approve of it and say, yes, this is good. Any more than you or I could take a spoonful of dirt and say, this is delicious. Can't do it. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person cannot, according to Paul, there's your blank, understand spiritual truth. This is why a little earlier in John 3, Jesus says, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You, you can't even understand the gospel unless you're born again. We're not born again because we believe. We believe because we're born again. That's a message for another time. But we don't, we don't make ourselves born again any more than you made yourself born. You and I contribute as much to our spiritual birth as we did to our natural birth. That's why God chose that analogy. We don't birth ourselves. We don't beget ourselves. 
We don't regenerate ourselves. The Spirit is at work. We are completely dependent upon the mercy and grace of God. Now, Romans 3. Turn me to Romans 3. We talked about how this teaching of total depravity is that sin affects every aspect of man and his being. It's exactly, I think, what Paul does when he strings together quotations from the Psalms and other Old Testament passages. I want you to see how much of us he covers and these absolute statements that I think he means very, very literally. Romans 3, pick it up in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So there goes Pelagianism. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All the seeker-sensitive services could do well to read this. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. Beginning to think that there might be something to what the reformers were thinking. No one does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Throat, tongue, lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No one seeks God. No one does good. No one fears God. From their head to their feet, they are corrupt. Total depravity. Blanks here. No one seeks for God. No, not one. Finally, turn to John 6. In some of the clearest teaching, and surprisingly, in an evangelistic context, the Lord Jesus has some things to say which eventually turned the multitudes away from him. He's got thousands and thousands of people following him at this point. He's just fed the 5,000. They follow him across the lake. And he begins teaching them some hard truth. Remember Luther said, we need to be humbled. We need to be desperate. We need to understand our true state if we are to reach out and believe God, if he's going to give us the grace to turn to him, if he's, going to, if he's going to give us the grace and open our eyes and unstop our ears and give us ears that hear and eyes that see, we need to be humbled and broken and desperate. As long as we are confident in ourselves and our own ability, we won't despair of ourselves. And Jesus is doing the same thing with some hard teaching. John 6, I want you to look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Did you get that? Here's your blank. No one can come to Christ without the Father's aid. No one can come to Christ without the Father's aid. And before you say, well, well, maybe it's the case that God draws everyone. I mean, doesn't Jesus four or five chapters later say, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. It doesn't work. Because notice the pronouns here. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now who's the him here? The him is the one who gets drawn, right? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The him is the drawn one. And I will raise him up on the last day. Same him. Meaning I'm raising the one who's drawn. No one can come to me unless they're drawn. And all the ones who are drawn... I'm going to raise on the last day. In other words, everyone in this passage who is drawn gets saved and raised. Or the eye in tulip, irresistible grace. That God's grace, when it chooses to draw and save, is effective. 
No one can come to Christ without the Father's aid. Now let me be clear, again, this does not mean anyone is stopped by anything other than their own nature. Jesus is equally clear in this passage. Look at verse 37. All that the Father give me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, now you want to balance what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is this. There is nobody who is coming to Christ. There is nobody who wants Jesus who is being turned away. Sorry, you can't have him. The good news is this. If you want Jesus, if you desire him, if you want his righteousness, if you want to know him, you can. No one gets turned away. Nobody. Nobody but nobody. There is no invisible wall stopping you. The good news is if you desire Christ, it's the evidence that the Spirit has already been at work in your heart. No one gets turned away. Nobody is refused. What stops us, our inability stems from our own nature and desires. What this ultimately means is even though all are invited, no one is turned away. It is only those in whom God's spirit works. It is only those who are born again. It is only those who have eyes that see and ears that hear. It is only those whose stone hearts are replaced with hearts of flesh who will come. This is why the early church in Acts 11, when Peter returned, telling about Cornelius' conversion with his household, listen to what the early church said. When they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They understood the conversion of Cornelius was a sovereign act of God. The only reason Cornelius and his household believed and repented is because God granted it to them, because God did a work in their heart. Because they understood the inability of Cornelius and his household apart from God's grace to do any such thing. Acts eleven eighteen. when they heard these things, they fell silent, they glorified God saying, and to Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's why Paul can write in 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those in opposition. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Paul doesn't say they may freely choose to repent. He says God might do a work in their heart. This is why we can be bold and courageous when we evangelize. The most hard-hearted person you know will not resist the work of the Spirit. Just as Paul, descri- I mean, as Luke describes Lydia's conversion in Acts 16, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what was said by Paul. It doesn't get any more clear than that. It wasn't that Lydia found some little corner of herself that still had righteousness, some little good portion of her reached out. We are not drowning people reaching out to take Christ's hand. We are dead at the bottom of the ocean and we need to be resurrected. We need life. And our understanding of the gospel and the remedy will be precisely proportional to our understanding of the sickness and disease. Are we mixed bags, good and bad? We can do good, we can do bad, we need a little help. Or are you and I dead, slaves to sin, and unless God makes the first move in our hearts, we will freely, willingly, and gladly run from him the rest of our life. The Bible's clear And God receives all the glory in this gospel and in this salvation. No one gets to boast, well, I figured it out. I was smart enough. I chose. We are final blanks. We are born loving our sin and hating God and his righteousness. We are unable to change our affections and must act in accord with them. 
Now, Jeremiah 12, 23 says this, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. We can't love what we don't love. We can't hate what we don't hate. We can't choose what we don't want. Now, our time is gone, so I'm gonna propose that we do communion next Sunday instead of eating up all of time and pushing back ABF. Um, We'll do communion next Sunday. I apologize for going on. This is a vital truth. Our understanding of our sickness will indeed affect our understanding of the cure. Who we give the glory to. Praise God, you believed. Or praise you, you believed. Was what's at stake. We need God's grace. We are far more desperately in need of God's grace than we aware and understand. And the good news is God always exalts the humble. He always draws near those who humble themselves. He never turns away a broken heart or a contrite spirit. No one who wants Jesus will be denied him. But when we get to heaven in glory, God will receive all the glory. Not most of it, not 99.99999% of it, but all the glory for our salvation. For, as Jonah says, salvation is of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for working in our hearts to, to be, convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, to, to convict us of our need, our desperate need for forgiveness and grace in your gospel. And Lord, if there's any here who do not know you, who have not had that work, I just pray now that even now your spirit would hammer away at their hearts, that you would open their eyes, that you would unstop their ears, that you would replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Lord, that you would let men see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the veil would be removed, and that they would love what they see, and that they would freely choose to come to you in faith. Lord God, we pray that you would glorify yourself in our midst by saving men through your glorious gospel. Lord, you've done everything for us. We were dead. While we were your enemies, you, you died for us. While we wanted nothing to do with you, you pursued us. You left your abode in heaven. You gave up your prerogatives and privileges and you pursued your bride and you found her and you redeemed her and you are sanctifying her. And we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.